Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Bradley Wright, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Connecticut. The topic, what the numbers say about Christianity. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Christian Community Credit Union, where faith and finances come together. Are you looking to save more, earn more, so you can give more? Join Christian Community Credit Union, where your money helps advance God's kingdom. For new member special offers, visit myccu.com slash NAE. That's myccu.com slash NAE. Put your money where your faith is. Join Christian Community Credit Union today. Visit myccu.com slash NAE. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Bradley Wright. Bradley is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut, where he researches social well-being and Christian spirituality. I love the titles of his books, Christians Are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies You've Been Told. Upside, the surprising good news about the state of our world. He has authored over 25 peer-reviewed articles, as well as other articles for publications like Christianity Today. Bradley holds a BA in Cultural Anthropology and an MS and PhD in Sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's done a lot of really interesting research projects. I'm excited about this conversation. Thanks for joining us, Bradley. Well, thank you. It's a real joy to be on this with you, Walter. I just noted that I like your book titles. They're, they're optimistic. The sky is not completely falling for Christianity. This runs counter to some narratives we hear today. Are, are researchers using different sets of data? What's going on with that? <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, sociology tends to focus on problems in the world. And the spin that researchers put on their data tends to reflect a couple things. One, their worldview, especially in dealing with religion, but also their motivation. You know, what do they want to what do they think will sell? What do they think will capture people's interest? And saying, hey, there's a big problem here, instead of things are getting better, is a pretty good way to sell books. And so uh, I think that's part of what's going on in terms of the different narratives that we hear. Hmm. So why are people actually attracted to this failure narrative about Christianity? Why does that in particular sell? Boy, we sure are, aren't we? Um, it's something I've been aware of for about 15 years, and I wrote a book about it, and I don't think I made a dent in it. It is just, uh, it's big and powerful. I think what's going on is that it benefits different people. So journalists can use it to get their stories published. Um, pastors can use it to sort of motivate their flock to pay attention to them. Uh, book writers can use it to sell books. Uh, conference givers can use it to get people to enroll in their conference. So I think it's very instrumental I think part of the problem, though, is that it's uh, also destructive because it, it really, it's very discouraging. So you're in the world of numbers. Um, with a wide angle lens, where is Christianity in America according to the numbers? Well, that's a great question. And that's something that people debate back and forth. Um, thankfully, we have some really strong data sets on it. If we're going to talk about the numbers of Christianity, we really have to distinguish between different flavors or traditions 
of Christianity. So you can think of the Catholic Church, you can think of mainline Protestants, I can think of the black Protestant tradition. You can also think of evangelicals. Um, evangelicals are holding pretty steady, you know, between 20 and 25% of the population. Uh, Catholics are as well, although they're, they're becoming increasingly Hispanic. Uh, black Protestants are holding pretty steady at around seven or 8%. Uh, but mainline Protestantism, uh, Walter, is dropping like a rock. Uh, in the last 50 years, it's gone from a third of the population to 10% of the population. Hmm. And, you know, if you, um, it's quite possible that it will continue uh, its downward decline in terms of how many people are involved in it. Hmm. So you've listed out a few different ways of understanding uh, the Christian streams. How, how do we actually define evangelicals? I mean, defining evangelicals in research seems to be notoriously tricky. Um, what, what are the different limitations and approaches that are being used to identify evangelicals? Oh, that's a great question. You know, if we were at a research conference, we'd probably sit down for coffee and talk about this for about mm. three hours. Mm. Um, it's something that we go back and forth on. There's three basic ways of identifying an evangelical. Uh, one, you can ask them, do you identify as an evangelical? So you can say, are you an evangelical? Are you, um, are you born again? Are you born again evangelical? Something like that. Uh, another approach is to ask sort of theology questions. Uh, do you have certain beliefs about Jesus, about evangelism, about the Bible? And then the third approach is to ask, um, are you involved in a church? And if so, what kind of church is it? And so you def define it by religious um, denomination. So all three are used. The last one, religious denominations, is probably the most commonly used. Um, but each has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, with identity, you know, somebody says they're an evangelical, you, you're not always sure exactly what they mean by it. Uh, with the theology, you're not sure they understand the question or maybe they've, they've misplaced something. With, uh, with the affiliation, you're not sure if they, you know, what their beliefs are, if they do, even if they do go to a church. So they each have their limitations, they, but they both have their, they all have their strengths as well. So I tend to think of good research as looking at all of them uh, in some capacity or another. So in looking at all of them, are you constantly then trying to merge different data sets? And if they're coming from one particular perspective, say self-affiliation, mm -hmm. uh, or another perspective, say denominational affiliation, then what, what's the hope of actually being able to meaningfully employ those different sets of uh, data? Well, that, um, that that's depends a lot on the project here. It depends a lot on the answer that you're trying to, uh, to give to a question. Hmm. So a common question is, how many evangelicals are there? And I don't know that there's a right answer in terms of how you define it, but you get very different answers with different definitions. Hmm. So for example, I've seen some um, theology-based questions that give a, a number of like six or eight percent. I've seen some uh, self-identified as 40 or 50 percent and I've seen some uh, and then the social uh, affiliation or the church affiliation questions tend to come in at about 25 percent so I think as much as anything we just need to note that we get different answers by looking at them uh, with different uh, definitions wow it really is a challenge to be circumspect in how we approach this information Yes, and it doesn't always lend itself to a quick soundbite that would go on Twitter of mm. blank people are evangelicals. It's, it's more nuanced than that. Mm. 
Well, broadening out the discussion from specifically evangelicals to the wider religious landscape, uh, a lot has been said about the religious nuns. That is, those people who describe their religious affiliation as, as none. What, what's your take on the religious nuns? Well, first of all, they kind of need a better name. Uh, it, comes, it comes up from a researcher who said, they're the people who, when you ask what's your religious affiliation, they say none. Mm. And so there's perpetual confusion between N-O-N-E-S and N-U-N-S. Right. Uh, so first of all, I think they, they just need better branding. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what's happening with them, their numbers have increased dramatically. They've gone from about 10% of the population to currently about a quarter of the population. Um, it's, it's important to note though, Walter, that these are people who are not affiliated with a religion, don't attend church, but that doesn't mean they don't believe in God. In fact, levels of atheism and agnosticism haven't increased much over the last mm. 20, 30 years, but the nuns have. And so people are moving away from religious organizations, um, but, not, but that may not be the same as their core spiritual beliefs. Is this where the language of religious liminals come in, comes in? So that's a great term, religious liminal. And that's something that researchers use to describe people. I've never heard anyone refer to themselves as a religious liminal. Okay. Um, what it highlights is that when we do research on people's religion, we tend to be overly deterministic. So we tend to say, this person's religious and this person's not. Like either you are or you're not. Either you're an apple or you're an orange. Either you're A or you're B. But the reality, Walter, is that some people are religious, and they always think of themselves as religious. Some people are not religious, and they're always not religious. But there's a lot of people in between, the limnals, who it depends on when you ask them and how you ask them. Uh, so Michael Hout, a, a demographer who's at uh, NYU now, did a study of this, and he came up with an estimate that about 70% of Americans are consistently religious, 10% are consistently non-religious, but about 20% are, I don't know, somewhere in between. Hmm. Um, if you ask them one way, they say yes. If you ask them at another time, they say no. And so I think that's important to realize that there's a lot of people out there who kind of aren't sure about religion uh, one way or the other. Hmm. So how do people outside of faith perceive Christians in general and evangelicals in particular, if, if there is a difference? Okay. So this has been a fascinating question that I've looked at in a, in a couple different ways. And um, one way to approach it is with survey data. So the Pew uh, Foundation periodically asks questions like, how warmly do you feel about different religions? And they'll say, you know, Jews, Catholics, mainline Protestants, Hindus, evangelicals, Mormons, atheists, things like that. In those kinds of survey questions, evangelicals come in at about middle of the pack. We tend to be thought of more warmly than Mormons, atheists, and especially Muslims, but not as warmly as Jews or Catholics. Uh, one thing to note, though, and I've talked to some of the people at Pew about this, is that those data are very unstable. So you can ask this question at one time, come back six months later, a year later, ask the same question with a, the same kind of sample, and just get a different answer. So I think the short answer is that it's middle of the pack is how people view evangelicals. Um, but, but it varies somewhat. Hmm. And, and that tends to be different than how evangelicals think other people think about us. Um, maybe that's part of the fear narrative is that we tend to think like, well, everyone hates us or nobody likes us or something like that. And hmm. I, I don't think that's true. Hmm. 
So you're working in this world of data uh, and you're trying to understand its implications. As a pastor, I'm asking the question, why is this data important for Christians to understand? Oh, that's a tough question for me, Walter. Um, I used to think a decade ago that the data were really, really important to understand and everyone should understand them accurately. And so I wrote a book about it and I went through just the best available data. And I was struck by time and time again, how, how stories, even if inaccurate, would trump data. Hmm. So you know, I'd lay out sophisticated analysis and somebody would say, oh yeah, but my uncle Bob went to a church and this happened. And everyone's hmm. like, oh really, your uncle Bob, no kidding. And not like there I'm in the corner pulling my hair out. <laughs> so, so I started to wonder honestly about the efficacy of data um, in terms of in the lives of the church. Having said that, I think it's important for pastors to at least be able to recognize bad data, to recognize the fear stories or the church is going to end next decade stories that are just factually incorrect. Um, so I, I would say at with the kind of data that I look at, that it's helpful for a pastor to know, but I think it's more important for them not to get hung up on the, the wrong data. Hmm. It's very powerful that you bring up the point of feeding the fear narrative, because if there is a fear narrative with the church's posture toward culture and the perception of others toward the church, then it automatically sets up a, an oppositional relationship. Uh, and so I can uh, see how having a more balanced view of what perceptions actually are uh, could make space for a different kind of relationship. Absolutely. And when you combine that with the liminals, that makes even more space. So I think the wrong narrative is nobody likes us, we're failing, and a third of Americans don't want anything to do with religion. I think a more accurate narrative is... Uh, People have somewhat mixed feelings about evangelicals, like they do about most religions and as they do about a lot of things in the world. And there's a lot of people who just aren't sure what they think about religion. Um, but there's a lot of people who are very open to it. So mm. make, making space for it, I think, is a, your phrase is a really good one. Mm. So you're always asking questions. You're always exploring things. What kind of research, in your estimation, remains to be pursued as we think about the future? What kind of questions should we be asking? What kind of solutions should we be seeking for? Okay, so I'm going to get in my prophetic mode and like just run out into the wilderness and talk about stuff that nobody's doing. Um, but I think needs to be done. And I've actually written an, an article about it. And that is, right now, we tend to focus on just describing what's going on. Wouldn't it be interesting, though, if we were more inclined to use data to test the efficacy of what we're doing. So churches, missions boards, uh, nonprofits have all these wonderful programs, but by and large, they're not tested with the same rigor as like development programs in other countries. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when it was possible, we did the kind of, um, kind of outcome-based research that would tell us what's working. So I think that would be fascinating. And I'm actually in talks with a couple um, well-known religious uh, nonprofits on that. Um, another thing that I think is going to be really interesting in the study of religion is looking at it as a, a predictor variable. Like what are the effects of being in religion as opposed to what causes people to be in religion? Hmm. And um, working with some people at Baylor 
to propose a, a study on that where we look at some of the outcomes of it. And there's an even bigger study uh, coming out of both Baylor and Harvard, potentially, that'll look at the effects of religion on health. Do you know religious pe people who go to church live substantially longer than people who don't? It's almost as powerful as the effect of smoking uh, in reverse. Understanding that and measuring it, I think is just fascinating. That's very powerful research. And you've alluded to not only describing something, but actually studying its outcomes, its efficacy. And some of your research uh, has focused in on self-control and what actually works in this area of self-control and, and spiritual practices. I want to connect a bit of that research with conversation that we had in the previous podcast with John Inazu on engaging with others across deep difference. And he talked about how we need to turn aspirations of tolerance, humility, patience into virtues. With your research on self-control and spiritual practices, this focus on outcomes, what, what thoughts do you have on how we can turn these aspirations into actual lived virtues? So I love the point he made in terms of converting aspirations into virtues. Mm. And, uh, you know, that ties into a lot of things of Christianity, but basically uh, enacting our faith, not just uh, what we think about it, but, but actually doing. So this is where I've been focusing the last five, eight years in terms of looking at um, different virtues, but especially self-control. So there's this whole, um, there's this whole basically social science technology about self-control, how it works, how it doesn't, how to get more, how to use it properly and effectively. And so I've been thinking and writing about how we can apply that to our Christian faith. In fact, I have a, a book manuscript that my uh, agent currently has under review at some publishers where, where I lay out basically what is self-control, how do we change behavior, and how do we tie that into our faith? Um, in church, we hear so many wonderful things about what to do. It's one of the things I love about Christianity. It gives such good advice and guidance about how to live. But as a congregant at a church, I'm not always great about enacting it. So I get these aspirations, but I don't turn them into virtuous living. Mm -hmm. What can we do to promote that, to lessen the gap between what we hear and what we believe and then what we actually do and, and who we become? And so that, that's sort of where my work is right now, looking at uh, self-control and uh, some other virtues. So this seems like uh, work that applies to a range of things as simple as how do I avoid that chocolate chip cookie to how do I change this profoundly addictive behavior? Um, can you flesh that out a bit for us? Um, what actually works against self-control, against behavior change? Okay, I, I love that question. It's something I spent several years looking at. Um, I had a chance to work with Roy Baumeister, who is the, probably the world's expert on self-control from a social science perspective. And we collected this big data set using smartphones where we texted people little survey questions about self-control and what they were doing. And we found a number of day-to-day -day things that reduce people's self-control. The two biggest ones are getting uh, poor night's sleep, only sleeping five or six hours, and then having interpersonal conflict. So we found that of the people who had both in the last 24 hours slept badly and gotten into a fight with a loved one, like half of them were extremely depleted with self-control. Hmm. And that's the state when you uh, are in such low self-control, when you start making real bad decisions 
um, and you start having errors in judgment and things happen that you regret for a long time. Hmm. There's a number of other things that we identified, but that highlights that to an, uh, to an extent, there's sort of like common sense living involved in having and um, avoiding low self-control. So it seems like the Lord really has designed us for rhythms of rest yeah. and we would do well to pursue those things. Um, if not getting enough sleep, if uh, getting into arguments works against our ability for self-control, are there other things uh, that we can be doing in order to improve self-control? Well, there's a number of things and, and one to be sad if we didn't know what they were. Um, it turns out that practicing religion increases self-control. So religious people, on average, have higher levels of self-control than non-religious people. And this is for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is we practice it. So when you practice religion, you learn things not to think, not to do. You learn things to think, to do, to feel. And that, that develops it almost like a muscle. Um, in terms of our own levels of self-control, kind of the, the drum I've been beating for a couple years now is that we want to manage it very thoughtfully. So in Christianity, we learn about being stewards of money and time and other important things. But self-control is another resource that's very important that we want to steward in light of our values. You know, what's important? Okay, how do we apply our self-control to that? How do we not waste on things that, that don't matter? The challenges that we face personally uh, are matched and even more so perhaps by what we face in our country. And you've done some work with one particular challenge and that is the issue of race. Uh, and I understand that you've explored this question. Do Christian churches in the United States actually welcome people from different racial and ethnic groups? Um, what led you to research this question? Well, it actually came out of my first book. So my first book, I tried to do kind of a comprehensive statistical description of evangelical Christianity in America. And I, uh, in kind of a cheeky way, graded the church from A, B, C, D, E, R, F uh, on different areas. And one of the low grades that, it, that I gave it was for its attitudes about race. So using traditional survey measures, there was circumstantial evidence that American uh, evangelicals, especially whites, um, were not open and friendly and welcoming to people of other races and ethnicity. So I thought, let's test this. Um, you know, let, let's see what's actually really going on. And so that's, that's sort of a, it, it flowed out of the, the survey research that I looked at with my first book. Okay, so I'm dying to know, what were your findings? Uh, <laughs> well, let me tell you how we, we found out. Um, we sent out about 4,500 4, emails to churches around the country. We randomly selected churches from a number of di different denominations, and we, and we sent each one got one email. And the email said, hey, I'm moving to your area. Um, I'm looking for a new church. Uh, could you t just tell me about your church? You know, how many people go there? When are your services? And any other information that you think that would be relevant. And everyone got the exact same email, but they got it from different people. Sometimes it was from somebody with a white sounding name, like Greg Murphy. Sometimes somebody with a Hispanic sounding name, like Jose Garcia. Sometimes from somebody who the recipient might think was African-American, like Jamal Washington. 
or sometimes the name sounded like it might be Asian, like Jong Soo Kim. Hmm. And so we sent it to all these churches. And the, what we did is then we measured, did they reply? And if so, when they replied, how many words did they use? How warm were they? How welcoming were they? Um, let me tell you a funny story about this, Walter. We sent out all these emails. We sent one to a pastor in a small town in Alaska. We sent another to a pastor in a small town in Texas. It was the same pastor. He had moved from Alaska to Texas and he got the same email. And he wrote back so confused. He said, well, are, are you moving to Alaska or Texas? You know, I'm happy to help you, but which church do you want to know about? So we got a really good laugh out of that. Wow. Where the um, find? So what, what we found is um, it's like the Winnie the Pooh story where he digs a hole for one creature and a different creature falls into it. Hmm. This was basically a test to see if evangelicals discriminated against race and ethnicity. They didn't. If you send uh, <clears throat> the emails that we sent to the churches had the same response rate and the same quality of response, whether it was white or black or Hispanic or Asian, same with Catholics, but mainline Protestants, much to my surprise, I analyzed the data like 10 times to make sure I had it right, did discriminate. They were 15% likely to respond to a black sounding name or Asian sound or a Hispanic sounding name and 30% less likely to respond to an Asian name. Hmm. So we were really surprised and we hmm. ended up writing it up as a cover story for Christianity Today. And it just shows that some of the narratives, the organizational narratives that we hear don't always match what, you know, the actions on the ground, uh, what's going on. So it appears to me that the data suggests the possibility of cross-cultural ch uh, churches uh, thriving, but flesh it out for me again. Is, is this true? Is, is, what's the likelihood? What's the likelihood of success for such churches? That's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I, the image in my mind when you ask that is walking in a lake and then hitting a hole and you just like suddenly fall on in, in over your head. Because we only tested initial response to people of different races and ethnicities. And their evangelicals did quite well. Um, I've read a number of books and articles about this, uh, for example, by like Michael Emerson and other sociologists who have studied in depth what goes on at cross-cultural churches. And it's a real challenge. Some churches can pull it off, but many can't. So much of how we practice our faith is culturally linked. So to bring together very different cultures has great both potential and promise, but also a lot of challenge. And it takes a lot of organizational skill and, and frankly, just grace to pull it off. So I would just put a question mark behind that and say, it's tough. It's, mm. it's beautiful, but it's difficult. Mm. It seems to be like all the important issues of our times. It's, complicated, it's difficult, it's worth the effort, but we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and jump into this. Exactly. So uh, as you uh, continue in your own research, what are the projects that now are occupying your attention? Okay. Um, so asking an academic what he or she's working on usually will give you a pretty long answer. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try not to go on too long. It's just we, we care about our research so much. Uh, there's two things I'm focusing on now. One is I am working with um, a couple different Christian organizations to try to set up an experiment where we test the impact of what they're doing. 
So one offers retreats for a certain group of people. I'm not going to mention uh, who, who they are to help them to have better relationships and a deeper faith. And if you can randomly assign who goes to the retreat, you know, like have some go now and have some go later, then you can actually test what the effect of going that retreat on that retreat is with the same power of like testing prescription medicines. Hmm. Uh, so that's one line of research. Another line that I'm getting into, and I kind of fell into it by happenstance, but it's become very important to me, is looking at the effects of smartphone use and digital device use on our spirituality and religious lives. We use, as, as you and anyone listening to this podcast will know, we spend so much time online. Um, my students here on, on campus, four hours a day on their smartphone, eat on average, plus computer, plus TV. How is all this time in the virtual world going to affect us spiritually? Uh, so I'm running a series of experiments to try to tease that out a little bit. So those are the projects I'm working on now. Wow. Uh, a lot of people are going to be eager to discover what you discover, and we look forward to that. As we draw this conversation to a close, if you could share one message with Christian leaders about what you have learned, what would it be? Uh, um, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Hmm. Um, one is most statistics that we hear are bad about religion. And they survive just because they're outrageous, not because they're good. So put a, lot, a big question mark behind just about any statistic you hear, unless you know it's from a good source. But the second thing that I would want Christian leaders to know is that social science can have a role in promoting the faith, or it can have a role at least in understanding the faith. So there's a place for it. I don't think I'm ready to have sociologists up at the pulpit, but social research, I think, tells us about how people work and our communities work and there's something there that i think can help us uh, basically be better christians our guest on today's conversation has been bradley wright associate professor of sociology at the university of connecticut i'm walter kim and on behalf of us all a very special thanks to bradley the national association of evangelicals is where we use influence for good Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.